Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. The political cycle in America has grown shorter, the rhetoric more bombastic. Emotions and reactions continue to swell to near-bursting levels. Listen as Rabbi Shalom explores the political landscape in the wake of the 2010 midterm election and offers some perspective rarely voiced from pundits and luminaries in today's media. When we have an election, people often describe it as a snapshot of the national mood, a real poll of what people think. But what I found in looking at the election, and looking back at the election, and in reading reactions to the election, I think elections are much more of a Rorschach test than they are a snapshot, because it means something different depending on who you are. You're going to get your own meaning out of it. So I read some liberal sources reacting to the election. They said that the poor performance of the Democrats nationally was a function of the poor economy. Of course they're going to do poorly. They're, this, they're the, to blame for it because they're the ones in charge. And the recovery has been slow, slower than expected, and so their policies are to blame. Well, the turnout was so low for the Democratic base. Young voters didn't come out the way they did in the previous election, and uh, liberal voters were disenchanted with Obama not pushing for more liberal policies and compromising too much and giving away too much and not accomplishing more with the Democratic House and a Democratic Senate. So they just didn't bother to show up. And the independents flipped. Obama won independence by eight points over McCain in 2008, and independents went for Republicans by eight points in the 2010 election. But that's a function of who came out among the independents. Because independents who lean Democratic didn't go. Independents who lean Republican did go. This is the time, say these liberal pundits, to present an even more forceful liberal agenda to get those people who stayed home to get out and go. On the other hand, read some conservative sources on the election, on the very same election. Their reaction is, this is a total endorsement of our agenda. Everything we've been saying for two years is absolutely right. The Obama program is totally repudiated. He will be a one-term president, guaranteed. We will make sure it happens. And everything he has done should be rolled back. Financial reform, healthcare reform, everything. And the people who are elected, the ones who are the strongest proponents of our message, say the conservatives, are the true believers. They have a clear message. They will not compromise. They stand by their principles. They won the election for us, and therefore they are the strongest and most effective voice. Time for conservative policies. And then this morning I thought, just to look at something somewhere in the middle, I'll see what a moderate Republican has to say. So I looked up David Frum, who was a Bush writer, uh, sorry, a, a Bush speechwriter, speechwriter of the first, uh, I'm sorry, the second President Bush. Uh, he at one point criticized uh, the Republican Party in their direction on health care. He was fired from the Heritage Foundation for that uh, heresy. Um, and he's created a website and a blog called From Forum. Anyways, I looked it up today just to see what he had to say. And the headline today was, The Midterm's Real Winners, GOP Centrists. <laughs> well, you're a GOP centrist, <laughs> so I can see why you're claiming that the winners of the GOP had pictures of Mark Kirk and a couple other random representatives from somewhere, and he's trying to claim that the real winners were not the extreme on one end and not Obama's uh, poor motivation for what otherwise is a supportive population. His claim is that, no, my group was actually the uh, core message of the election. So it's a Rorschach test. 
And the dilemma in saying that this election was a snapshot of the national mood is that there are truly three levels of elections in our system. There are primaries, there are general elections that are midterms, and then there are general elections that are truly national and presidential elections. And as we know, primaries are the most partisan. They bring out the truest of true believers because only the party representatives are voting in many of those primaries, depending on the state. But they're most likely to produce these true believers. And the, the dance that many candidates do is they jog one way for the primary to get elected out of their party, and then they jog the other way for the general election to try and fill the middle. But it's always a, a very difficult dance. Now, when you have a presidential election, you have a national presence at the top of the ticket. It's very important to pull on those coattails to pull you through, or perhaps to drag you down to defeat. And the midterms are somewhere in the middle, because the turnout is substantially lower. So it's like a larger election. It's not just a primary, except only the most committed are the ones that come out. As a comparison, we had about 60% of the possible voters come out to vote in the 2008 election. For this midterm election, we had about 42% of the voters, only two years later. And that was an improvement. In 2006, it was only 41%. It was up by a percent. But still, it's a substantial difference, 30% drop from that uh, turnout in 2008. And what this really means, and this is why I get annoyed at pundits on both sides claiming this is what the American people want. We don't really know what the country wants, because even in a presidential year, let's say you get 60% turnout. Obama won a little over 50% of the vote, and McCain won under 50%, it was 53 to 46%. But if you consider it as a percent of the total possible voters, Obama only won 32%, and McCain won 28%, and of the total possible voters, the real winner was, eh, I'm not even going to bother. Because 40% didn't show up. That was the winner. And the midterms is even worse. Let's say it was a flip. This time the Republicans won 53%, the Democrats won 46%. Their sweeping mandate for the new GOP revised revolution came from 22% of the possible voters. And the Democrats' crushing loss was 18% of the possible voters. And the trouncing victor was none of the above, not worth my time, with 58% of the vote. 58 to 22 to 18, clear winner. It's a headline worthy of The Onion, the satirical newspaper. Apathy wins in landslide. Can't be bothered to give victory speech. Now, in some ways, Mark Kirk got it right. He said almost half the state voted for the other guy. So you have to keep that in mind. Waves come and waves go. You know, in 2006, it was a massive wave for the Democrats. It was only four years ago. And what were the most important factors in this election? I want to look at three key pieces, and then I want to open it to your comments. I'm sure you've thought a little bit about the subject over the last several weeks, perhaps even months. The first is to talk a little bit about the Tea Party and pluses and minuses. Now, the pluses for the Republicans were certainly some wins came from that energy and enthusiasm of people getting out to vote and raising money, but there were also some shortfalls and difficulties. These Senate campaigns, just as one example, in Kentucky and in Arkansas, I'm sorry, in uh, Alaska, were much harder for the Republican Party than they could have been. Uh, Kentucky, they had to spend a lot of money in the end to win, but it was money they could have spent elsewhere. In Alaska, as we've seen, the sort of 
Civil War that turned into a writing campaign that may actually be the first successful writing campaign since the 1950s um, has clearly produced some ill will within the Republican side. And in other examples, it led to losses in cases that could have been easy wins. Certainly in Nevada, where Harry Reid is still very unpopular, a substantial percentage of people who disapprove of his job still reelected him because they didn't like the alternative that was a Tea Party favorite in Sharon Engel. And the same is true in Delaware and in Colorado, where in Delaware it was a slam dunk with the establishment candidate, but the Tea Party candidate was a true believer, won the primary, and then got crushed in the general election. And even in Colorado, where a mainstream candidate could have been much more successful, the Tea Party candidate won the primary, and then in the end has lost the uh, general Senate election. Now, the Tea Party presents often a clear message on the importance of debt uh, and the, gov the government's debt and its problems, the importance of managing taxes, although it is fair to point out that they claim their acronyms for Tea Party stands for taxed it up already. Um, but our tax rates are actually lower than they were under Eisenhower and under Kennedy and even under Reagan. Um, so hard to say that we're more taxed than our predecessors because they were more taxed than we. Nevertheless, there are also some conflicts in this message because it's an amorphous, not centralized movement. And as some have speculated, it may not be clearly only about fiscal issues. Uh, I had an interesting discussion with a, a member of our congregation who, who claims to be a Tea Party supporter um, about the issue that many of the most prominent Tea Party candidates are themselves radically, radically pro-life or anti-abortion. Sharon Angle in Utah, Christine O'Donnell in Delaware, Joe Miller, Rand Paul, go down the list. They were all very anti-abortion rights. And you think if the approach is smaller government, stay out of your hair, that wouldn't be part of the message. And if it's only about fiscal policy, what does it have to do with fiscal policy? Is this maybe a Trojan horse for the old Republican conservative religious right message? Well, the challenge is you have a group like the Tea Party Patriots. It has a thousand local chapters, a very large umbrella group. It says that its core values and its mission statement are fiscal responsibility, constitutionally limited government, and free markets. That's it. But they held a press conference the day after the election. And their co-founder said that there are four major planks to what we're doing. One of them is political. The second is educational. The third is judicial. And the fourth is cultural. To quote him, quote, all civilizations and empires have fallen because their cultures became decadent. We need to lift up conservative culture, family values, and wholesome things by supporting conservative musicians, writers, artists, and producers. Well, this doesn't just sound like fiscal policy of the debt. And the other major concern with the Tea Party people that are now in the House and even in the Senate is are they going to be willing to compromise? Because after all, governance is like making sausages. You've got to cut corners here and there. It's how it works. Not always pretty. You might like to resolve more than you like the process. But given the fact that there's a Democratic president, given the fact that there's a Democratic Senate still, what are you going to do about important issues that come up? One of them coming up in just a couple of months. It's called the federal debt ceiling, also known as our national credit limit. Now, unlike your credit card with the bank, we are allowed to raise our own credit limit whenever we want. And we do it periodically. Right now, our credit limit is like $13 trillion. And so now we're coming due to that because we've borrowed more money 
we're up to our credit limits, so we have to pass a law to extend the credit limits. We can borrow more money and continue to pay people. Well, a lot of the Tea Party people came in on a very strict principle of reducing the federal debt and not supporting raising the debt limit and keep printing more money. Well, what are they going to do? Of course, the consequences of not raising the debt limit and not borrowing more money are unknown. Is it default? Can't send out Social Security checks. Can't be government employees. Can't send out Medicare reimbursements. A lot of challenges and uncharted territory there. What's going to happen? Or when it comes to the other issue that's been hotly debated, the extension of uh, Bush-era tax cuts. Is there going to be a point? $250,000 a year family income, $500,000 a year family, a million dollars. Is there a point at which there's a compromise, or is it all or nothing? Now, the Tea Party movement has been an all or nothing movement. It's absolute, it's true believers. When they're in Congress, are they going to give a little to get a little, or is it our way or the highway? The second key that I found in looking at the coverage over the last few months is that you can run from who you are, but you can't hide. There were a lot of Democrats who tried to run away from the fact that they were Democrats. They tried to hide the fact that they voted for health care. They tried to hide the fact that they voted for um, the uh, stimulus package or the auto bailout. I mean, the irony is that in many cases, these policies have not been the panacea that they may have been sold in, but they're not disasters. I mean, there are positive things to run out of the health care reform that they could have highlighted. There are certainly positive things with the auto bailout, with GM about to offer stock and the government stake going down from 60% to 30%. We may even make money on the, on the auto bailout deal. We're probably going to make money on the bank bailout deal, which was Bush's policy anyways. But the dilemma is that they, ran, they tried to run away from who they were. They tried to run away from Nancy Pelosi. They tried to run away from Barack Obama. They tried to run away from the fact they were Democrats. And it did them no good at all. The so-called blue dogs, the conservative Democrats, who insist on, on a more centrist position on health care and plenty of other issues, they were decimated in this election. Maybe 48 before, now there's about 25 left. But almost half of them lost. And many of them ran ads saying, I didn't like Nancy Pelosi. I don't want Barack Obama to come visit the campaign. Well, that didn't do them any good. In the end, what happens is just like moderate Republicans were wiped out in New England with George W. Bush as their standard bearer, when the top of the ticket, when your party principal figure is not liked by the opposition, then the opposition is not going to vote for you. You can't hide who you really are. So conservative Democrats lost in the South and the West, just as moderate Republicans have lost in New England. Same thing. And the principle is, accept no invitations. Why have a Democrat that acts like a Republican when you can have a real Republican? That's what they chose. Republicans tried to run away from Bush in 2008. It didn't work. Democrats tried to run away from Obama. It's not going to work. People know who they are. That D next to your name sort of gives it away. And the last principle is, I found looking at the coverage this last several months, we have probably the most juvenile electoral politics ever. <laughs> what do I mean by juvenile? Well, first of all, let's talk about attention span. I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old at home. They sometimes will sustain a game longer than the American attention span when it comes to issues. I'll give you an example. In August, a website aimed at youth voters called Rock the Vote asked young people, how many of you plan to vote? 
And 50% said they were very likely to vote, and another 27 said they were somewhat likely. So 77% said they were likely or somewhat likely to vote. Actual results, anyone guess? About 20%. About 20%. And it's even down from the 2006 midterms, which was 23%. Okay. So did they forget? Did they forget what they said they were going to do? Did they get disillusioned? Well, they just didn't stick with it. You know, you have to remind people, the TARP bank bailout program was not Obama's program. He agreed to it as a candidate and as a senator. He voted for it. So too did Roy Blunt, who was the majority leader in the House of Representatives. So did many, many Republicans who are now in the leadership. And yet, they ran against it as if they'd never heard of it. TARP bailout? TARP. I am shocked, shocked to find there was a TARP bailout going on. Well, the people forgot. I mean, Obama, by overwhelming numbers, is associated with the TARP bailout, even though it wasn't his fault. The economy's doing badly. So let's try the stimulus program. Oh, stimulus didn't work right away? Okay, let's try something else. Oh, that's not, oh let's try something else. I mean, it's, it's the attention span of a five-year-old. Maybe that's insulting five-year-olds. Another juvenile feature of the election, name-calling. <laughs> I don't have to remind you about that. This person's a socialist. This person's extreme. This person's a crook. This person, who is this guy? Uh, this person's corrupt. And get him out. I mean, it's again a liar. Enough. You know, I mean, I, I, I'd interview with my kids sooner than we've had this election. You do also have the phenomenon that you unfortunately have in schools of bullies throwing their weight around. You know, the kids that are bigger than the other ones, they tend to uh, get what they want. Not always the nice way. Now, sometimes the massive outside money that appeared in this year's election made a difference, and sometimes it didn't. I mean, in California, Carly Fiorina and Meg Whitman dumped millions of dollars. I mean, it was a sort of stimulus program for advertising executives. Um, but they dumped millions of dollars in the TV ads and to lose by 10 points. I mean, it was not successful. In Connecticut as well, millions of dollars for no result. In West Virginia, millions of dollars didn't win. So money isn't a panacea. And I'm not positive that the transparency that the Democrats have been pushing for to try and get people to disclose who their donors are would really make that much of a difference. Because who's going to read the footnote to the footnote in the newspaper as opposed to seeing the ad on TV, even for a few seconds? So if money doesn't make all the difference and transparency doesn't make all the difference, why is this important? The bullies throwing their weight around? Well, think about what happens now. A lobbyist comes into the representative's office and says, I have a company who's willing to throw $2 million against you at the next election if we don't have this provision for them in the bill. That's leverage. That's undue influence. It's not a bribe, it's a threat. That's how bullies work. And that may well be the future of legislation, given the current playing field when it comes to political advertising. And the last thing that made this election juvenile, in my opinion, is it was like a team sport. Winner take all. Facts don't matter. My team is the best. Even if that team has more all-stars, has been to more playoff games, and has won the World Series in the last two years, and mine has never been to the World Series in my lifetime, has no all -stars. My team is the best. Now, we've tried in schools to inculcate a feeling of everyone wins. Right? Everyone plays, everyone wins. But 
You can't fix that. I mean, kids play games. There's a winner, there's a loser. You pick a team. And in politics, you root for your team, you tear down the other team. Anything your team does is right, anything the other team does is wrong. Whatever you can say to hurt the other team. I mean, I went to college, I went to college hockey games. We said terrible things about the other team's goalie's mother. I mean, <laughs> were they true? Of course not. <laughs> you know, it's what you do in a team sport. But that's what politics has become like. You know, and sometimes, by the way, you can run and hide. It's ironic, you know, with this tea party, anti-establishment insurgency to change the culture in Washington. Do you know who won the Senate race in Indiana? His name is Dan Coates. He was a former senator from Indiana. And then he left the Senate, retired, moved to North Carolina, and became a lobbyist for big industries. And then he decided to run for Senate again when uh, the uh, Democratic Senator Evan Biden chose not to run for re-election, and he won. Is that a Tea Party insurgency? He's a very wealthy lobbyist who lives in North Carolina and maintained a residence in Indiana. Well, again, sometimes maybe you can run for who you are. So, who's reading the results right? Is it the moderates? Is it the conservatives? Is it the Tea Partiers? Is it the liberals? Well, the answer is, I think, they're all like the proverbial blind men with the elephant. You know, the story is you have three or four blind men trying to figure out what an elephant is, and one of them touches the tail and thinks it's like a snake, and one of them touches the ears and thinks it's floppy and flat, one of them touches the skin and, uh, and thinks it's uh, rough like a snake uh, or a, a, a tree that, uh, touching the leg, and another one touches the trunk and thinks it's like a garden hose, and who knows what the full picture is? Well, you've got to look at a little bit of everything. Yes, there are definitely concerns about deficits that the country is running, but I think more people are concerned about the deficit in their house and the deficit in their cash flow and the deficit in their credit card account than they are about the federal deficit. That's almost too abstract. They're mad at the slow economy. And if they don't like Obama, you see, the question is not just that they don't like him, but they don't like him why. It always drove me crazy when they talked about the health care bill, and 55% of the country doesn't like the health care bill. But why? Well, 30% don't like it because it's too liberal. But 20% don't like it because it isn't liberal enough. So that doesn't give you a clear mandate of what to do. Those aren't automatically all on the Republican side of the ledger or voting against Obama. Maybe some of them aren't voting. But that doesn't mean it's a mandate to go in one direction or the other. After all, remember, this election, if you look at the percentage of possible people who could have put in their two cents, it was 22% to 18%. They're the ones who bothered to be counted. Those are the ones that got a voice. But in terms of what we all want, who knows? This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke. And thank you for listening.